Never abandoned. Never abandoned. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever experienced a relationship, whether a serious one or a passing acquaintance, in which you were convinced that you were walking on thin ice? If you cannot recall experiencing it, you may have seen it in another person's life. This is a situation where you know that things could fall apart <laughs> at any moment. For there are no shared values, affection, interests, or goals. It was apparent from the get-go that this has no future. You knew that you were about to be abandoned, or someone was. Why am I telling you this? Without the assurance of stability and endurance, a relationship cannot have peace and fulfillment. We all need to know just where we stand in a relationship. We need an answer to the question, how committed are you to me? Relationships require considerable investment. We need to know whether or not we're wasting our time. A proper assessment has to be made. Now, this is also true of our relationship with God. Without some semblance of assurance concerning God's dealings with you, there will be no peace in your life. Anxiety will take over. That's the nature. Our Lord Jesus gives great assurance to those who are indeed His, those who are true believers. In, in this holy text of scripture, we find at least, well, we find two solemn statements from our Lord. You must know that when our Lord Jesus said something of utmost importance, something that is exceptionally crucial, something that he stakes everything upon, he, he usually had a marker before the statement. When he is about to say something crucial, he has a marker right before the statement. <laughs> Essentially, such a marker communicated what we say at the end of our prayers. What do we say? Amen. In the King James Version that we just read, you know, uh, such statements usually read, Verily I say unto you, or unto thee, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Verily, truly, amen. Same thing. Hmm. Just another way of saying amen. It was a way of pointing to the seriousness of the issue. Hmm. The only difference is that it's not coming at the end of a statement. It's coming at the beginning. <laughs> so when our Lord said, verily, I say unto you, or truly, I say unto you, that's an amen statement. Before he speaks. There are two of them in the text that I just read. <laughs> if you want to know Christ personally and have changes in your life that, that will come from knowing him, you have to be sure about these matters and understand these two solemn statements. I've given them names of my own so you can have a handle on them. The first one I call an inexperienced applicable pledge. Hmm. And the second one I call 
and infinite patience, an inexplicable pledge, and an infinite patience. And what's the whole point? The whole point is that Jesus Christ is assuring those who are truly his that he will never abandon you. He will never give up on you if you are his. And so I want to encourage you today to know that if you have truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will never be dropped. Other people may drop you. Other people may abandon you, but not him. You can count on him. (laughs) So let's work it out. Number one, an inexplicable pledge. An inexplicable pledge. Look at verse 25 of the text. What did Jesus say there? Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That is the first one. The first amen statement. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the first amen statement here, truly, amen, verily, is what our Lord is telling us in this statement. Our Lord essentially said, I am radically and utterly committed to those who trust in me. I am radically and utterly committed to you. It's an inexplicable pledge. Let's work it out. When our Lord said, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine, he had just been eating and drinking. That's kind of obvious. He was eating and drinking with them. And then he said, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine. I am not going to do this until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Now, this is the kind of language one uses when making a vow. This is vow language. Let me illustrate this. If you go back in Acts chapter 23, there's a fascinating story there. In Acts chapter 23 and verse 12, A group of men gathered and decided that the Apostle Paul had to go. We're going to kill him. They were committed to killing the Apostle Paul. They made a vow, and the vow was not to eat or drink until he's dead. Until we have killed him. When anyone says, I take a vow not to eat or drink until I achieve my goal, That puts the highest possible priority on that goal. (laughs) Another way of saying this is, I won't even eat before I have done this. There is nothing more important. I won't even stop to eat. This language means, this is utterly the highest priority of my life. Eating and drinking can wait. Our Lord Jesus said it here, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He was talking about the messianic banquet. He was talking about the messianic feast at the end of time. He was talking about the final day, the last day. Essentially he was saying, 
I am utterly committed, radically committed to you. I will never abandon you. There is no higher priority in my life than to get you home with me, with my Father, in the consummation of our joy. Isn't that marvelous? It's an inexplicable pledge. Now, it's an amazing statement, but that's not, that's not all. We're not only told of the size of our Lord's commitment, that is the magnitude of it, we're also told of its shape. <laughs> In other words, we're not only told how much our Lord was committed to getting his people to glory, but we're also told here just what he is ready to do to get it done. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Period. I said period. Hmm. If you didn't get that, please focus on verse 26. Because there's a whole lot of theology here. Verse 26 says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Period. Oh, you clearly haven't gotten it, huh? Um, that was the end of the meal. That was the end of the meal. How could that be the end of the meal? He had the bread and then he had the wine. And then he says, let's sing a hymn and go. I can imagine that the apostles, the disciples, they were probably shocked that that was the end of the meal. Why? This was a Passover meal. How could the end be here? How can you announce a hymn right here? We're not supposed to be finished. <laughs> this is interesting. I love it. Let me explain something to you. The Passover meal was the annual commemoration of the great deliverance by God of the children of Israel, bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. We all know about that. God, in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 14, had said through Moses, and I quote, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Forever. Every family was to observe this meal. There were always three elements to the meal. Stay with me now. Three elements. First, there was the bread. Unleavened bread. The reason it was always unleavened bread was to remind them of the fact that their forefathers had to rush out at the very last minute from Egypt. It talks about the haste and the riskiness of the time. It was unleavened bread because nobody could wait around for the bread to rise. So the first element of the Passover meal was that you passed around the bread. Usually, the head of the household would say to the family at the Passover meal, Look, this is the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. 
So you have the unleavened bread. The second element was the, the wine. The cup went around four times <laughs> to represent God's four promises to the children of Israel before he took them out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 6 records these four great promises. In summary, God essentially said to them, I will bring you out. I will rid you of your bondage. I will pay your redemption price and I will take you away to be my people. Mm. Every time the cup, the wine went around, it commemorated these four promises. So, we're following. We had the bread, unleavened bread, and then we had what? The wine. The third element of the Passover meal was the lamb. The lamb. Why? What was behind the necessity of the lamb? You see, on the night before Passover, God had warned the children of Israel that he would free them from Egypt by sending an angel of judgment, an angel of death, down into Egypt, and that the sword of judgment would fall on people in Egypt. Now, please note that God did not specify that the angel of death would smite the Egyptians. I hope you haven't been reading it that way. Hmm? He never specified this angel of death would smite the Egyptians and then spare the children of Israel. No, 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 no. The mission of the angel of death was not to promote ethnic or national supremacy. <laughs> Please pay attention. <laughs> what did God say? God said in effect to the children of Israel, I want every family among you to kill a lamb and to put its blood on the doorposts of your houses to show that you have sacrificed the lamb. Why? Why? Do you know what it means? God was making it abundantly clear uh, that his sword of judgment would fall on all who deserve judgment. His sword of judgment will fall on whom? All who what? Deserve judgment. Mm, mm. Of course, it should be clear that everyone deserved judgment, both the Israelites and the Egyptians, for all were sinners. So what's the point? The point is that the angel of death, this sword of judgment, was to come down on everyone unless provision was made. <laughs> hmm. You see, the God of the Bible is no respecter of persons. He's not vindictive. He's not capricious. Everyone in Egypt, whether they were Israelite or Egyptian, was to be subject to judgment unless some provision was made for their sins. The provision was the blood of the Lamb. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> so, the word was declared that a lamb was to be killed and the blood was to be put on the doorpost of the house. When the angel of death, the sword of judgment, saw the blood, he would pass over that house regardless of the ethnicity or nationality of its occupants. <laughs> and all inside would be spared. No one was to assume that their ethnic group would cover them or their religious affiliation or their race or their personal record would save them. The angel of death was interested in only one thing, the blood. Now, that is why every year in Passover, you had to have the bread, the wine, 
and the Lamb. Now get back to our text. <laughs> our Lord Jesus was observing the Passover with his disciples. He spoke the words of instituting the Lord's Supper that we are all familiar with and we are about to partake of. In summary, he told them that the bread represented his body and the wine his blood, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the New Testament. Then suddenly, it was over. Let's sing a hymn and go. Now, we today have no problem with the sudden ending, but the disciples must have been shocked. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus changed the Passover. did not pass the bread saying this is the bread of affliction of our fathers in Egypt. He passed it around and he said this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body. The same thing happened when he passed around the cup. He did not say this is the cup of God's redemption from the hand of Pharaoh. No, no. He said this is the cup of my redemption. This is my blood. The Lord changed the whole thing. You should be shocked. I don't know if you realize how staggering this is because you need, I guess I need to read it again. Let, let, let me go back to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. I just read it earlier. Let, let's do it again. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance for how long? Forever. God had told the children of uh, Israel in Egypt that they were never to change the Passover celebrations from what he had prescribed. It was a regulative principle. <laughs> You're not allowed to change the Passover it, it, will, it should go on as is forever. But in our text, our Lord Jesus just changed it. How can he do that? Was our Lord overruling the Father? Let me ask you a question. Who has the right to change a commander-in-chief's order? You know about the military, whether you're in it or not. Who has the right to change a commander-in-chief's order. If you are in an army and down comes an order from the commander-in-chief, who has the right to change their order? Who has the right to say, ah, oh, nah, let's do something else? <laughs> who has the right to do that? The answer is simple. Only the commander-in-chief can change the order of the commander-in-chief. Hmm. For our Lord Jesus to change what was said at the institution of the Passover means that he was claiming to be the one who gave the original order. <laughs> now hear this. Our Lord not only changed the words of the institution of the Passover, he also changed the menu. He changed what was served. <laughs> You know, let's come back later to the change in the meaning of the ordinance. Concerning the elements, everything was normal when he served the bread. Everything was normal when he served the wine. But then, 
something was conspicuously absent. Why would he abruptly announce the hymn and close the service? What about the lamb? The menu had changed. <laughs> Listen, folks, and I want you to hear me clearly. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. Oh, you picked up on that. Oh, that's important. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. That was cataclysmic. <laughs> Our Lord was saying in effect, I am the lamb. Don't you understand? This night is different. It's special. It's set apart from every other night. As great as the deliverance from Egypt was, I am giving you deliverance from sin and death and hell itself. As important as it was to get out from under the economic and social bondage in Egypt, how much more important would it be to get out from under the bondage of evil and death? Those lambs slaughtered in Egypt were necessary so that you could realize that sinners will only be saved and accepted by grace, by the shedding of the blood, by the shedding of my blood. What is the point? Our Lord Jesus said, in effect, I tell you the truth. Verily I say unto you, Amen, yes, Amen. <laughs> I am so radically committed to you that I'm prepared to back it up with, with everything I have. <laughs> you know, when most people say, I will not eat or drink until I accomplish this goal, or that will happen over my dead body. What they're really saying is, I will die or accomplish my goal. That's what they're saying. However, our Lord's message was different. He was saying, in effect, tonight, I will die to accomplish my goal. Come on. N not or accomplish my goal. He, I will die to accomplish. He was saying, I will die to accomplish. Tonight. I will die for you to accomplish my goal. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I will pay for your sins. Take shelter under my blood. There will be no condemnation at all for you because of what I am about to do. <laughs> when our Lord Jesus changed the words of institution of the Passover, he claimed to be God himself. Also, when he changed what was served, he was saying, I am God, but I have not come to demand a sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. I, I have not come to demand payment for sin. I came to make payment for sin. <laughs> Therefore, the God of the Bible says, I love you enough to die for you. Please listen to me. If you don't have a God who says there must be payment for sin, then you have a God who is not interested in justice and has spent nothing to love you. When our Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth, verily I say unto you, I will let nothing stop me from getting you home to my Father. He was willing to die. Oh, what love. Oh, what 
love. What love? It is because of this love that I can join with the hymn writer and say, sing, pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. I'm blessed. <laughs> if you are saved today, you are blessed. I'm blessed by my Savior's incarnation, emptying himself to fill me up. I'm blessed by my Savior's crucifixion, satisfying the law's demand once for all. I'm blessed by my Savior's resurrection, confirming the efficacy of the atonement. I'm blessed by my Savior's intercession, pleading my case before the throne in glory. I'm blessed by my Savior's promise, to come again for the consummation of my joy. Hallelujah to the love of God. True believers are blessed. <laughs> so what did I just talk about? Hmm? An infinite what? An inexplicable what? Pledge. An inexplicable pledge. Secondly and finally, an infinite patience. An infinite patience. Look at verse 30. This is the next Amen statement in the text. <laughs> Jesus said there, verse 30. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, That this day, even in this night, Before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Mm, mm, an infinite patience. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the second Amen statement, verily I say unto thee, makes it abundantly clear that even though our Lord knows that we will disown Him, even though our Lord knows that we will betray Him, His patience, is infinite concerning those who are truly His. Isn't that just too good? Sounds too good to be true. That He's infinitely He's watching Peter. Swear! Not me! I will die for you! He's saying, no you won't. <laughs> By the way, we, all, we often miss the fact that all of them, the text says all of them said the same thing. He's usually picking on Peter. You know, who denied the Lord? Peter. No, all of them did. And Jesus knew all would deny him. And yet, he was so patient. He will never give up on us. Instead, he's prepared to do whatever it takes, whether by chastisement or by encouragement, to get us to glory. He's going to do whatever it takes, whether by chastisement or by encouragement, to get us to glory. Listen, folks, knowing that he will never let you down is essential if you want a relationship with Christ that changes your life. However, it is just as crucial for you to know that you will let him down. He won't let you down, but please know you will let him down and he knows it. But he's still committed to you. 
almost sounds too good to be true, but I've come all this way to tell you it's true. <laughs> Concerning true believers, it's infinite patience. Oh, look at verse 27. <laughs> Our Lord said to disciples, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. You know, he knew up front that they all were going to be a bunch of traitors. He was telling them that every one of them would be traitors in some measure. Look at verse 28. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. What? <laughs> I know you're going to betray me. I know you're going to betray me, but guess what? When I come back from the dead, we'll hook up in Galilee. that interesting <laughs> what the Lord was saying you will all betray me but I'm on my way to Galilee and we'll hook up there I know what you're about to do to me and I don't like it but I still love you I will still meet you in Galilee I have a job to do I will rise from the dead and we're going to go down to Galilee and I'm not going to let the fact that you're going to disown me, the fact that you're going to betray me, the fact that you're going to let me down come between you and me. <laughs> I'm not going to let that come between me and my goal for us to someday sit down, sit down together at the Messianic banquet. I want you to know... <laughs> That in my scheme of salvation, I have factored in that you will let me down. Wow. 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 That almost sounds too licentious. I knew you were going to let me down after I saved you. But I plan to deal with that anyway. Still committed. Listen, folks, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that your commitment to Christ does not save you. You are saved by His commitment to you. Oh, yeah, oh some of you didn't even hear that. <laughs> the message of the gospel is that your commitment to Christ does not save you. You are saved by His commitment to you. You only love Him because He first loved you. So, what does a sinner need to do to be saved and preserved in Christ? The answer is nothing. <laughs> All you need is your need. You just have to come to the end of yourself because in your sin you're full of yourself. Abase yourself. All you need is nothing. But hear this. Most people don't have it. Oh, you didn't even hear that. I said all you need is what? Nothing. But most people don't have it. Most people have something that they boast about. <laughs> Some idol that they think gives them a powerful identity. Some invented God that they believe makes them somebody, gives them significance, or some temporal object of worship that they imagine will provide them some security. He says, come with nothing. But most people 
don't have nothing. Most people have something. <laughs> I thank God for the whole hymn writer Charles Wesley and Joseph Toplady who said, Nothing in my hand I bring. <laughs> Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. To thy fountain, Lord, I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Listen, all you need to say is, Lord, I don't believe enough. Lord, I know I will disown you. I will let you down. I won't be able to keep this thing up on my own. I, I have I'm going to mess it up. Lord, help me! Only then will the Lord say, now I will do what you can't do. Listen, folks. This is the only basis for me to sing and rejoice. Are you hearing me? I said, this is the only basis for me to sing and rejoice. I, I, I can now <laughs> rejoice with the hymn writer. Oh, you know this one because he's an Armenian. <laughs> you know, Charles Spurgeon was the one who said, every man is a Calvinist when he begins to worship, when he begins to pray. <laughs> Have you ever heard an Armenian prayer? I bet you haven't. Armenians will argue theology, heated theology all day long, man-centered theology. But the minute worship starts, they turn into Calvinists. No one says, Lord, well, you know, you can only go so far. We need uh, for our doctors to do the rest. So thank you for your part, and we'll hope for the best with the others. Nobody prays like that. You, you, somebody needs healing, you say, Lord, heal them. Somebody needs salvation, you say, Lord, save them. Even Armenians say that. <laughs> they turn into Calvinists when it's time to pray and worship. <laughs> You're only an Armenian when you argue. Okay. <laughs> L listen to me, folks. Charles Wesley, an Armenian, <laughs> he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and Followed thee. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Thank God for that Armenian. <laughs> Beloved, I'm free. Are you free? I hope that you don't mind hearing me testify about this. I'm praying that the Son will make you free if you're not. I'm free indeed for the Son made me free. You see, before, because the shackles are gone, Love in my heart, for the stony heart has been replaced with a heart of flesh. Because the shackles are gone, I've got joy. <laughs> joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because the shackles are gone, I've got peace like a river. The peace of God which 
passes all understanding because the shackles are gone. I've got a down payment, a guarantee, an earnest of the Holy Ghost. Because the shackles have gone, I've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Because the shackles are gone, I can only praise the Son because He has made me free indeed. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. (laughs) I'll close. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, if you believe these two things, inexplicable pledge of Christ, his radical commitment to you, and the infinite patience of Christ, his embracing you even when you have disowned him. (laughs) You can be a faithful disciple of Christ. You can genuinely and unashamedly live the Christian life. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Listen. If you embrace these two crucial principles in Christ's work on your behalf, everything will change. Everything will change. Not only will the gospel impact your relationship with God forever, but it will also trickle down into every nook and cranny of your life. (laughs) You'll begin to do for others, well, in a finite way, what our Lord Jesus has done for you. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. And they won't understand it. They're going to be blown away. (laughs) They'll be baffled and stunned at the level of your commitment to your relationship and your willingness to love people who have disowned you. They'll be shocked. They'll be shocked. And when they see that you still love them, something happened to this person. Huh? Because you have that inexplicable pledge that you want to now mirror and mimic. And that infinite patience that you now want to mimic. (laughs) So it not only impacts your relationship with God, but with everybody else. They'll be amazed at the grace of God to you and the grace of God through you. <laughs> mm. These amen, amen statements are powerful indeed. Let me reiterate, amen responses are critical in the worship of God, both in the past and in the present. In Judaism, amen was something you said when you were listening to someone teach in the synagogue. The elders would sit up front, they would listen. They would weigh what is being said, and if it made sense to them, and it sounded like the the truth of God's word, at the end of the teaching, the elders would say, Amen! Now, what, 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 what did they mean by that? They said, in effect, we have weighed what you have said, and it is true. It is indeed consistent with the oracles of God. Now, what was unusual about our Lord Jesus' teaching style was that He did not allow the Amen to follow his teaching. He placed the Amen at the beginning of his statement. With verily or truly. (laughs) Some scholars have have explained that our Lord's use of Amen to introduce and endorse his own teaching is without analogy in all Jewish literature and the remainder of the New Testament. 
This is another demonstration of his unique authority. He was announcing categorically that no one could impeach the veracity of his teaching. Whatever he said was an unimpeachable absolute. He was his own authority. He was very God. So he didn't need to wait to the end to hear amen. He said amen in the introduction. Because he's God. <laughs> How can you come to grips with somebody who has given himself utterly to you without giving yourself utterly to him? That is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or worship. Again I ask, how can you come to grips with somebody, capital S, who has given himself utterly to you without your giving yourself utterly to him? To not do so is as foolish as it is immoral. <laughs> Our Lord Jesus Christ managed to turn things upside down. Upside down. He came not in strength but in what? Weakness. He came not to gain power but to what? Give, give away power. We have been called we have been called to the same thing to make the inexplicable pledge of loving people with unswerving commitment and to have the infinite patience of loving people who are going to let us down. People who in the long run demonstrate no prospects of being of any benefit to us. <laughs> They'll just use us. And when they come back thinking, oh, they must be a little hot in the collar. And they say, see your arms open wide. They say, wow. They must have been with Jesus. Mm, mm. It should be clear. It should be clear that biblical Christianity is not a silly, casual, relational game. It is not promiscuous dabbling or sampling of religion to taste without swallowing. You know, like Bud Light. In a whole lot of trouble, right? <laughs> they say, what do, we, what do you used to say? They taste great, but what? Less filling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Hmm. Biblical Christianity is not the charismatic quest for temporal power analogous to the animistic manipulation of spirits to control the affairs in everyday life. It's not, it's not the oversimplification of ritualistic religion that imagines that eternal issues can be answered in the pageantry of some priestly ceremony pushing incense around or ringing bells or, you know, doing your whole thing. It is not the naivete of legalistic religion that imagines that men and women corrupted by both original sin and continued transgression can manifest in themselves the, the perfect obedience to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and pay off. Imagine that. Pay off in this life the infinite debt 
of eternal perdition. How foolish. It should be clear that biblical Christianity is far more serious than all of the above. Far more serious. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not about a human solution to the plight of humanity. It is about a divine rescue mission. <laughs> it is an act of clemency. A judicial pardon decreed by the judge of all the earth. From among the guilty and condemned sinners, all worthy of an eternity in hell, God the Father was pleased to elect before the foundation of the world some sinners unto salvation based on nothing meritorious in them, but only on the matchless love in himself. <laughs> because of his absolute commitment to justice, he could not just release them of their guilt and liability without appropriate payment. He's a just God. Somebody had to pay. So, God the Son became incarnate to cancel by his atoning death on the cross of Calvary the infinite debt of the same sinners through the sacrificial shedding of his infinite blood. <laughs> then, in the fullness of time, God the Holy Spirit applied the power of the atonement to the same individual sinners by awakening or quickening them concerning their sinful state and enabling them by regeneration to embrace through repentance and saving faith the work of Christ, the incarnate Son, on their behalf to the salvation of their souls. Isn't it a marvelous story? This divine arrangement is the basis of all true worship. It is not secured by human will or human power, but by the omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent purposes of the true and living God. This is why our Lord's work is an inexplicable pledge of commitment to you who believe, and an infinite patience towards the same despite their inevitable infidelity. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did stand at Calvary. <laughs> what is the appropriate response to this kind of love? Can it be ignored? Can it be rejected? Can it be minimized? Can it be viewed with indifference? Only to one's peril by God's grace and for his glory. I can only surrender all. I can only bow my knee. I can only praise and exalt his name. I can only plead for pardon. I can only receive it with gladness. I can only rest in him. I can only bask in freedom. I can only repent and believe. This God of grace has assured me that I will never be abandoned. Listen, never. Never, never be abandoned. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your free and sovereign grace. Thank you that you will never leave your true saints nor forsake them. In Jesus' name.